I feel so privileged and blessed to be with you this morning. It is a great honor to not only fellowship with you and to worship the Lord in such a uh, meaningful way. Thanks for the leadership of those musically and in our service already this morning. As well, it's an honor to share God's word and have this privilege. Thanks to Pastor Van for extending the opportunity to me to come. My name is Jonathan Rinker, and my wife and I are also privileged to share at Appalachian Bible College in the southern part of the state. I'm originally from Illinois. I did meet my wife there at Appalachian Bible College, and as I came to that school, trusting God's leading and wanting to receive more Bible instruction and follow his will one step at a time, God changed my life and made a big impact on me through that ministry and that school. And it's been exciting for me this morning to see all of the children here and the young families and want to encourage the families to pray even now for your children. I just see little infants and uh, my wife and I, we have four ourselves. The girls are turning seven and six this month and the boys are four and a half and two and a half. So much like you, we're a busy family and my wife, like you, knows sleepless nights and all of those things. And I want to encourage you, even at this time, as I encourage myself, <clears throat> pray for your children. Pray that God will um, direct their lives and call them into ministry. You would be shocked if I was to tell you the stories that I hear as I work in our admissions department at the college of the number of youth, teenagers that are approaching college and are spiritually perceptive and sensing God's work in their life and the desire to go to Bible college and be trained and often the resistance from their parents wishing rather that their children had a career to fall back on or better financial security or the assurance that they'll have a job when they graduate. And yet there is a desperate need around this country and around the world for those who will boldly proclaim the gospel and those who will serve in churches. You've been searching for an associate pastor here. Many churches are without a pastor and have great needs. So my friends, I pray that the success of Fellowship Bible Church will be measured by how many of its own it has sent into ministry. The best way for you to provide for your next pastor, and <clears throat> certainly you're not thinking of that at this time, you're blessed with Pastor Van and others and leadership and the elders, but the best way for you to prepare your own, or I should say the best way to have find your next pastor is to prepare one of your own. To see a church body praying for and guiding the youth and any age, say, Lord, call some of our own into ministry. So I want to encourage families and children and youth that way, and there's a display I've been able to bring with information in the back. Appalachian Bible College not only is designed to serve churches by training the next generation of leadership for ministry, missionaries, pastors, Christian school teachers, those in Christian camping and others, but also we have year-round ministries through Bible camps and conferences, and I was telling a family this morning about our family camp in the summertime, and I think you'd love it. My wife, her favorite week of the year is family camp because she doesn't have to cook for a week, and that doesn't have to clean up. So <clears throat> some of you wives may enjoy that. Also, there's activities for all ages in that one week of family Bible camp. There's other weeks of camp that aren't family camp. So you can find information like that on the back table, and I would encourage you to see me afterwards or pick some information up or jot down your address on a card so we can send you our newsletter on an annual basis. I do want to give you greetings this morning from uh, so many, well, not so many, at least a few that I know. There's more interaction I could have with you by letting you know that I did graduate from ABC with Brock Keppel. You probably know Brock and uh, Amy. Also, uh, Billy. Went to school with Billy and Alicia, good friends of ours. And then, of course, uh, Matt and Amy White are there now, and I understand Trina Martin is there as well. So it's neat to have all the interaction. Of course, Pastor Van and Janet are graduates as well. Matt and Amy White are a great blessing to our campus, as you would expect. Thank you for entrusting them to us. And they are just a great example, a blessing to the campus. Matt is in my class. I really wish I had a good story to share about him, but any story I would have would be um, usurped by the story that was told to me by Mr. Ray Toothman this morning. He's going to give me a picture, I hope, 
of Matt in a little sheep costume, right? Is that right? He said he had him in a Christmas program, I think, when he was three years old. So I want to see a picture of Matt in a little sheep costume as a three-year-old. And then I'm going to share it to, with all of my class. <laughs> Matt sits in the front row of class, and he is a great student. And he's also helped me with my desire to learn hunting. He helped me find the right spot to sit last year and shot my first deer. And so I have enjoyed a friendship with Matt. So I give you greetings from Matt and Amy White. also want to give you greetings, most importantly this morning, Greetings to Fellowship Bible Church from from the triune God, from the only true and living God, as we sang our Maker, our Father, the one who hears us when we call. I invite you to turn with me this morning to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. And there is a greeting in Revelation chapter 1. A greeting from this God, the triune, holy, and only true and living God, our maker and our redeemer. This greeting in Revelation chapter 1 that begins in verse 4 is a greeting that's directed, as Revelation was first delivered, to the seven churches in Asia, this province of the Roman Empire, which is now modern-day Turkey. Well-known cities that you would recognize are the seaport Ephesus. Chapter 2 records the letter to the church in Ephesus. Other cities such as Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and then Laodicea. These seven churches along the mail route were selected perhaps as typical churches of the day facing typical challenges, persecution, suffering, because they were sticking out in their culture, because they did stand for Christ faithfully. Also, challenges to not be sucked in by their culture, and Laodicea is especially known for its materialism and wealth and pride and self-sufficiency. And Christ gives specific challenges to these specific needs in these churches. But before that, there is a greeting given to the churches in verse 4. Because these churches are so much like ours today and like the challenges that individual members and families of Fellowship Bible Church face, I believe as well you could see this greeting from God as one not only given to these churches but given to you. So here is God's message, my friends, to Fellowship Bible Church. Here is what God would say to you if he was writing a letter to Fellowship Bible Church, addressing its needs and concerns. But before we get to that greeting in verse 4, verses 1 through 3 set the scene, and they provide for us a certain atmosphere of urgency. The setting is laid out for us in such a way that we're caused to sit up, to sober up, to pay attention, and realize there is a great need that we, not only, as it says in verse 3, Hear, but we take to heart, that we take heed. Notice the words in the introduction before the greeting in verses 1 through 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads and the the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. There are two aspects of this introductory setting this setting of the scene in verses 1 through 3, which cause it to be so important for us, which even though it has been 2,000 years since these words were delivered, we say, wow, this is important. Number one, it identifies for us the person from whom this message really comes. This is not, my friends, just the Apostle John, for all the respect that the churches would have given him as the Apostle, as the the one who is now perhaps the the last apostle left. 
This is not just John, and this is not just another Sunday morning sermon at Fellowship Bible Church here in Charlestown. This is a message. These are words from Jesus Christ, delivered from God the Father to his servants. You realize the message delivered from God this morning is important that we listen. Does God throw around his words loosely? Does he carelessly dispense revelation? Does he, when he give it, when he gives it, is it that which is optional for us? Is it, read these instructions if you care to, or if not, don't worry about it and try to figure it out on your own. No, this is very serious. And so verses 1 through 3 are very clear. It's the revelation not only about Jesus Christ, but from him. Given to him from God to, delay, to relay to his servants. And secondly, not only do we realize who this message is from, but we realize there's a great urgency because, as the end of verse 1 says, and as the end of verse 3 po- points out again, twice in these verses, it's things which must soon take place. It is also, as the end of verse 3 says, because the time is near. Therefore, again, great urgency to these words. Why is it important, and why is there blessing given to those who read, and also those who take to heart, those who take heed, those who internalize, who put it at the top of their priority list, who incorporate it into their value system and live this way according to what has been dispensed. The time is near. Therefore, blessed is the one who takes to heart because they're living as if it is really true, even though it has been many, many years. But looking through God's eyes, looking at his view of history, this is a, a culmination to which the world is rushing in God's timetable, in which all things will be wrapped up and brought under the lordship of Jesus Christ, in which he will judge the world in righteousness, and his wrath will be displayed in an unbelievable way against the rebellion and hard-heartedness and stiffness of heart of so many of the world. And so, my friends, as this is delivered to the churches, this is a wake-up call. This is a warning to the complacent Christian. This is a warning to the one who has settled into the comforts of the status quo, as if this earth is all that there is. No. And not only is this a warning, but this is also for those who are faithfully following in the face of opposition, those who are doing God's will, this is a comfort, isn't it? Wouldn't it be a comfort to know the time is near? Oh, thank you, Lord Jesus. Indeed, come quickly. I am looking forward to your return. I I have a greater hope and stock in eternity than I have placed in this earth. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then you will also appear with him in glory. Seek those things which are above, where Christ sits on the right hand of God. When Christ, who is our life, So you understand, this realigns our thinking and it sets the scene for a greeting which is very important for us this morning. Number one, from whom does the message come? God, through Jesus Christ. This is not optional. This is serious. And number two, there is a blessing for those who internalize and take to heart because the time is near. There is peril and a rude awakening for those who ignore So these 22 chapters of Revelation are as contemporary today as ever. Interesting thing about Revelation is that it more often and more frequently quotes and makes allusion to the Old Testament than any other book in the New Testament. That's that's kind of odd. Here is the last book, a forward-looking book, some prophecy still yet to be fulfilled, that quotes and makes allusion to the Old Testament more frequently than any other New Testament book. And yet, on the, it's showing both its fulfillment of all prophecy and the culmination of it and having its foot in the Old Testament and a foot yet in the future. And here we are, 
2008. What is God's greeting for Fellowship Bible Church? I think a greeting much like he would have given to these seven churches. Verse 4 gives us, as is typical of a letter of the day, the writer John. You're familiar with the Apostle John. You understand he's written the Gospel of John, fourth book in your New Testament. He's written these letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. But now read this about him from verse 9. I, John, in Revelation 1.9, your brother... So here's this revered and aged elder, this apostle, who calls himself their brother. That is, he he shares with them in a very personal and family-like way. He's on an equal plane with them. He also calls himself, in verse 9, a companion. That is, I'm a partaker alongside of you. I am a a fellow in this suffering, verse 9 says. Suffering and kingdom. Now, this is very strange because a combination of words that you would not expect typically. Suffering and kingdom. Kingdom. We we like to hear that. We like to think, yes, I'm going to reign with Christ. Yes, there's a privileged rank and, and opportunity to be a part of his kingdom. But on the other hand, there's suffering that goes with it. This, though, should not be strange to us when we think of other verses in the New Testament like 2 Timothy chapter 2, where Paul says, This is a faithful, trustworthy saying. If we suffer with him, we shall also reign with him. There's a privileged blessing and opportunity to those who are faithful. And he at once and the same time reminds them that, yes, we are enduring suffering and challenging times, but combined with that is the promise of great kingdom of which we are a partaker. And the patient endurance, suffering and kingdom, all experienced and realized through patient endurance, that is, bearing up under the pressures of the difficulty of following Christ in a God, Jesus Christ, hating world. If they hated me, they will hate you also, Christ would say. Paul also says, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, all who will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now, although the situation of these churches that we'll look at just a little more closely in a moment is a lot different than ours today, it is true, I believe, my friends, and even more so in the days to come, as Revelation is made clear in other parts of the New Testament, there is A certain scorn and rejection for those who are countercultural, for those who are faithfully following Christ. There is a world of which you are a stranger. Aliens and strangers in the earth, 1 Peter says to us. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, Our citizenship is in heaven, for which we also eagerly look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will change our vile body. And so, I'm a companion with you in the suffering kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. That are ours, what does that mean that these are ours in Jesus? That is, as a part of following Christ, this is what has been granted to us. This is, if you will, the uh, compensation package that you receive when you're recruited to be a follower of Christ. Oh, it's a glorious thing. And it should not be strange to us. Again, Paul says, I think it's Philippians chapter 1 and verse 29. He says, For to you it has been granted in the behalf of Christ. For to you it has been granted. That is, it's a gracious gift given to you in behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, first step, but also to suffer for his sake. Think it not strange the things that you experience, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. This is the gracious package given to you. Now, I would just say for a minute, now this sounds strange to think of suffering and patient endurance as a gift from Christ, but Paul thinks it otherwise. Paul says, suffering is the avenue by which I know him in a deeper way. Philippians chapter 3, verse 9 and 10. That I may know him, Right? The goal that I may know Jesus Christ in a deep, intimate, and personal way. Both the power of his resurrection and the fellowship, the sharing in his sufferings. 
sharing in the sufferings of Jesus Christ because I'm following him is given meaning and significance and purpose as I also at the same time experience the power of his resurrection. So you have this beautiful combination, the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Paul says this is knowing Christ in a deeper way. And for that, I will experience anything. Oh, that I may know him, Paul says. And so, this is John, and this is an introduction to the churches. Notice something else about these seven churches in chapter 2 and verse 8. Chapter 2 of Revelation, verse 8, where he says to the church in Smyrna, and this is now Jesus Christ speaking his letter that is going to be delivered then in written form. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty. My friends, this is not just some fictional story. This was a real church with real people, real lives, real pain, real hunger, real scorn, real loneliness, real uncertainty about the future. I know, Jesus says, I know. And that, those two words are repeated over and over again in each of these letters. Each begins with that, I know, I know, I know. And it's the piercing understanding of Jesus Christ. For those who are complacent, it's a wake-up call. For those who are suffering, it's a comfort that he knows and understands. I know your afflictions and poverty, yet you are rich. Verse 9, the second half, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Christ is telling them to expect it. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison and to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Notice verse 13. Here's his message to Pergamum. I know where you live. Now he's going to describe their community, right? How does the one who knows describe Pergamum, where Satan has his throne? You see, through the eyes of God, he sees the spiritual battle. He sees the real reality. The curtain is pulled back. Say, folks, this is how it is. This is the real reality. This is the actual estimation where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. They saw it with their eyes. They know this fellow. Maybe he was a member in the church, quite likely. Perhaps he was a relative. Maybe he was a spouse. Maybe he was a father. Put to death in your midst. This is not convenient Christianity. This is a church which is suffering. Now, that's the situation of at least two of the churches. One of the churches, Laodicea, as I already mentioned, the last one given a letter at the end of chapter 3, was a very complacent church. Not suffering persecution, but perhaps in an even more perilous situation because they had grown complacent and comfort with all of their riches. There was an earthquake in Laodicea, and I believe it was the 80s AD, and they were offered help from the government to rebuild the city. They said, no thanks, we can do it ourselves. They had so much money and so much wealth and all of the things they prided themselves in that, that had spilled over into their spiritual life. They didn't need God. Christ says of them, you are lukewarm. I am going to spew you out of my mouth. I stand at the door and knock. And perhaps the message to Laodicea is one that aligns more closely with the American church than any other where Our own wealth, materialism, pride is that which has lulled us to sleep. And we've lost any significance and value in this culture. My friends, what is your value system? What is your priorities? You realize the message delivered to you today. What would God say? He would say this, the time is near. Blessed is the one who takes to heart. For those who are complacent, this is a warning. And for those who are suffering, for those who face an uncertain tomorrow, we all do, 
even if you think you have it figured out, even if you've already told God your plans by writing them into your day timer or your PDA, guess what? God's in control. And for the unknown future, perhaps you have lost a job. Perhaps a child or grandchild has gone off the deep end. Perhaps a relationship with a spouse is on the rocks. Jesus says, I know. And for these situations and many others that were quite likely the case for these churches, he gives this greeting, verse 4 of chapter 1. I want you, my friends, this morning to also hear God giving you this greeting. Verse 4, we read, after he says to the seven churches in the province of Asia, he says, grace and peace. Grace and peace. What is grace and peace? What a beautiful combination. What, what a glorious and valuable two sides of the same coin. Grace is God's unmerited, undeserved, abounding, rich mercy and love and kindness poured out into the lives of those who even when we were alienated and enemies in our mind by our wicked works, even then God reconciled us to himself. I don't know the state of your heart this morning, my friend. Even if you have pushed away the prodding of the Lord for many, many years, he's extending to you grace. May it melt your heart. Grace and peace. And, and grace can affect peace in our lives. And, and peace is, is a, a deep-seated contentment with the situation of life that cannot be shaken. These are precious commodities which are not based upon the status of the stock market. These are wonderful characteristics which are a solid rock for the Christian life, which you ought to latch on to, which you ought to treasure and prize as supreme gifts from the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. They were also first typical greetings of the day. Yet in God, they had reached new levels of significance, meaning, and value, and reality. This is not just theory. Grace and peace, no matter what your situation is, suffering churches, no matter the uncertain future, no matter your circumstances, afflictions, and poverty. Grace and peace. Now, if I was to, this afternoon, when the service is over, greet you, shake your hand, and say, how are you doing? And then say, hope you have a good week. Or, have a good rest of the day. Or you say to me, have a good trip home. Well, those are, of course, as we make those exchanges, and they're so common, typical things, we probably say them several times a day, they are well-intended, and they certainly, I'm sure, come from a sincere heart, but they're rather worthless. What can you really do about the outcome of my day? You have, and I have, absolutely no power to control what happens to you this afternoon, and this evening, and tomorrow. And I have no control over your reactions to what God brings into your life. You see what I mean? So I say to you, have a good day. And I'm glad that you accept that as sincere, and I really mean it, but there's nothing I can do about your day or your week or your future or your health or your children or your finances or anything. The person from whom the greeting comes makes all the difference in the world. Do you understand? The person from whom the greeting comes. This is not a greeting from John the Apostle. Verse 4 says, grace and peace to you from makes all the difference in the world from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. What do we have in verse 4 and 5? We have 
a description, a glorious description of the source of grace and peace. That source is none other than the triune God. You have an incomprehensible source for a glorious commodity that settles into our heart and into our lives, which is unshakable amidst any circumstance. Grace and peace from the triune God. Have you ever tried to figure out, to process and comprehend in a complete way so that you could explain it, the Trinity? Ever try to figure that out? It's been likened to things like an apple with a skin and a meat and a core or an egg or something else, my friends. All of these things fall rather short because there is only one and unique God and he is incomparable. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is beyond comprehension, Psalm 145.3. It is past finding out. It is incomprehensible. Isn't it wonderful that you and I are invited to pursue a God of whom we will never grow bored. You'll, you'll never completely figure him out, and that's not a discouragement against pursuing him. That's a glorious invitation to say, here's something that, of which you will always gaze in amazement, of which you will always be humbled, and he, he will always be worthy. And I sometimes wonder as I read Revelation here, especially chapters 4 and 5, when you see that throne room and talk about worshiping for him forever and ever. As a child, I think I used to think, boy, isn't heaven going to grow a little old? Will we be sitting on clouds with, you know, wrapped in white sheets, strung, strumming harps? I don't know about you, but that picture looks a little boring after the first bars of that harp music. What I come to realize is that you and I will never tire of eternal worship because eternal worship of this triune God will never exhaust his worthiness for that worship. You see what I mean? He is eternally worthy. And, and don't look toward heaven with a bit of disappointment. This is, my friends, going to be the most glorious, full life you will ever know. And so, we have this beautiful triune God, and it says that this grace and peace is from, first, a description of God the Father in these terms. What does it say in verse 4? From him who is, and who was, and who is to come. What is that? What is that aspect of his character that is being emphasized in these three phrases. Him who is, him who was, and him who is to come. This is a focus upon his eternal existence, right? He has always been in eternity past. He was not created, the only thing not created. He is now and he is to come. There's a unique, two unique things about this phrase that's used a couple times in Revelation. One is this. It's out of chronological order. Do you see that? Him who is, the present, is put first toward the front. And then it goes to the past, him who was. And then, in an odd way, it doesn't use the being verb to say him who will be, but rather it puts even greater emphasis upon the surety of our future, him who is to come. That is, in the future, he's just not going to exist somewhere out there, but he is coming, him who is to come, which is a surety, which has tones and sort of a, um, a early sign here in the book of Revelation of his coming for us and all that that entails, his judgment upon a rebellious earth, his vindication of those who have righteously followed Christ, have placed their trust in him and followed his way. He is coming. But now I ask you again, why is it that he fronts, that he puts to the front the present, him who is, and then talks about the past. I would expect grace to you and peace from the one who was and who is and who is to come. Why does he put to the front, why does he place an emphasis at the beginning upon his present existence? Well, perhaps this could be a reason, and it is true that it's easy for us to give mental assent, that is to 
Yes, I agree with the fact that God has always existed. And he was present in the past. I've seen him act in creation. And he delivered the nation Israel. And he he powerfully intervened in history when Jesus Christ was born. These are all things before me. And I believe he's coming. But where the rubber meets the road of your faith, my friends, is he present today in your circumstances? Is Is he really involved in your life or is he aloof is he a hands-off god has he wound up the clock and is he watching it tick or is he still intimately involved in the affairs of this world and for your life today whatever it may be and for certainly the life of these churches and the members there who had seen people die who had faced persecution and challenges in an unknown future the challenge is is god really present when all situations around me indicate otherwise. And when the the world is spinning out of control, as I read here, so to speak, in Revelation chapter 6 through 19, with all of the horrendous judgment poured out on the earth, yes, even then, God is completely and sovereignly guiding each moment. Oh, what an anchor for the soul. Can this eternal and sovereign and powerful God who's always in control, can he give you grace and peace? Yes. How? Well, you, you understand that peace comes to the life of the one who knows he's in control. Grace is experienced as I see God's hand at every turn and I'm looking for his involvement. I understand that what happens to me tomorrow is as a, a part of his design. And furthermore, my friends, this is a call to accountability, is it not? Do I realize that God is the one who calls the shots in my life? So when I face a situation where I'm questioning, what is God's will? What should I do? Should I take this job or not take it? Should I buy this item or should I not buy it? Should I go to this school or not go to this school? Should I move to this place? Should I do this for our family or not? We understand that It's not me who's in charge, but as 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which then implies ownership. You are not your own. You've been bought. Ownership, involvement, sovereignty, control from a loving, present, heavenly Father. We sing, I have a maker. I have a Father Who knows each tear that falls, who hears me when I call. Wow. Grace to you and peace from this one, an eternal sovereign God who is present. He is now. Not only from him, but from, it says in the middle of verse 4, from the seven spirits before his throne. Now because we find in this passage lined out for us, God the Father, and clearly the beginning of verse 5, Jesus Christ, the natural assumption is this is probably a reference to God the Holy Spirit, but it's put in strange terms, the seven spirits before his throne. Look with me, if you will, at chapter 4 and verse 5. Chapter 4 and verse 5. Here you have in this throne room description of God's throne in heaven. Chapter 4 and verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. So that John, who's trying to put human words to something which blows the mind, he says, blazing before the throne are seven lamps, and these seven lamps are the seven spirits of God. Hmm. It appears to be a description of the Spirit of God in intimate presence around the throne of God the Father. Not only that, look at chapter 5 and verse 6. Not only 4, 5, but 5, 6. Chapter 5 and verse 6 where we read, Then I saw a lamb, Jesus, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders, He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. The lamb 
is pictured as having seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, spirits sent out into all the earth. So here we have in the throne room of heaven, we have God the Father, seven blazing spirits, or blazing lamps, the spirits of God, and then the lamb standing there, and his seven eyes are, are said to be the spirits of God sent out into the all the earth. You have the triune God in intimate relationship and unity a description which is almost beyond our comprehension, or probably is, and the seven spirits of God, I believe, is now a description of the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, in all of his fullness, completeness, and perfection. You know, each of these letters in chapters 2 and 3 ends with this admonition, he who has an ear, let him hear what the, and Jesus is speaking, what the Spirit says to the churches. And so it's the Holy Spirit which brings to reality and brings to pass it through conviction and makes it settle in our heart the message which comes from God through Jesus Christ, delivered to the churches. And Jesus says at the end of each letter, he, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we have in verse 5, grace to you and peace from the beautiful Holy Spirit of God. Now, what do we know, my friends, as we read the New Testament, that the Holy Spirit has been given and placed in our hearts. I already quoted 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. God resides in you through his Spirit, which is a comforting presence. The love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit given to us, Romans 5. Galatians chapter 4, he sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The intimacy of the relationship, the grace and peace that can be experienced as a real settling factor in life, regardless of circumstances, can be known through the personal presence of God, his spirit. Do you know it today, my friends? Do you... Walk in sensitivity to God's prodding in your life. There's an old song. We don't sing it much anymore. Every time I hear the Spirit moving in my heart, I will pray. It's the thought of this. I am, I am obediently walking in accord with the Word of God and the Word of God brought to my mind through the Holy Spirit. Or I've heard it put this way. The Spirit of God takes the Word of God and applies it to the heart of the child of God to make him more like the Son of God. The Spirit of God takes the Word of God and applies it to the heart of the child of God to make him more like the Son of God. Walk in the Spirit. Be filled by the Spirit. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Grace and peace to you. From. You want to experience real grace, not just theory. You want to experience heart-settling peace. What's your relationship to God through his spirit? Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. He who has the spirit has life. He who has not the spirit, he who has not the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Note now, the final one from whom we receive grace and peace here in chapter 1. It's said in verse 5, from Jesus Christ. Grace and peace from Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus, my friends? Very briefly, you have three descriptions of who he is, and then three descriptions in the end of verse 5 and verse 6 of what he has done. And what he has done is that which accomplishes the grace and peace in our life. The end of verse 5 puts it this way, or beginning of verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness... And who is the firstborn from the dead, and who is the ruler of the kings of the earth. This seems to be a description of perhaps three aspects of the life and work of Jesus Christ. Number one, in his earthly life, he was the faithful witness. Now we read, I believe, in chapter 2 already, and verse 13, about this fellow named Antipas. Antipas was also called a faithful witness, and he was put to death in your city. Now the Greek word for witness is martus. Martyr. It's the word martus from which we get our English martyr, or one killed for a cause. Why is it that the word for witness now 
is also synonymous with martyr because so often in that day, through persecution, that a person who was a faithful witness was also a person who lost their life. A witness ended up being one killed. So we have our word martyr today. Here's one Antipas, and here's one Jesus, who himself also was faithful to the point of death, even death on a cross. What an example for those who are facing an unknown future. I look to Jesus Christ, who's already been through it. Can I experience grace and peace from one who understands, who was in all points tested, tempted like as we are, yet without sin? He's already gone through it. Hebrews 12, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. Oh, yes, I can receive real grace and peace from one who's been through it and knows it and experienced it. Not only that, but I know he's the one who is in sovereign rank. He's the firstborn. He's exalted from the dead. Faithful witness in his life, exalted in supreme rank in his resurrection. The firstborn from the dead. I think a reference to his resurrection, his exaltation, in his rank, in his leadership, under which I am a follower. And finally, he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. And, and what a great contrast this is to those who are told, you have to offer incense to Caesar. You have to bow your knee to the imperial cult, to this man who calls himself a god. There is one ruler of the kings of the earth. He is the king of kings and the lord of lords. And in his coming, it will be so. All will know it. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Ruler of the kings of the earth. My friends, I look forward to real grace and peace. I look forward to vindication. I look forward to his righteous judgment. I look forward to him being proved for what he is. That all the world may know that he is Lord. And finally, the middle of verse 5 and verse 6 puts it this way. To him who loves us. To him who loves us. Oh, my friends, I again say to you this morning, this is not just theory. This is not just good wishes from a God who's only giving us his words. Grace to you and peace, my friend, there in that city suffering. Oh, I heard about that fellow who was killed in your midst where, where Satan lives. This is not just words. This is action. This is a God who loves us. How? It says in verse 5, He has freed us. Perhaps your Bible says washed us or cleansed us. The idea is a really a release, a redemption from our sins by his blood. Thirty times in the New Testament we have the word lamb. That is a helpless, defenseless, innocent little animal lamb. Twenty-nine of those occurrences of Lamb in the New Testament are right here in Revelation. Most of the time about Jesus Christ. The primary description of Jesus is not just one riding on a white horse who's got a sword coming out of his mouth and, and strikes the armies of the earth dead with his very words, sword coming out of his mouth, but here is a lamb who was slain, violently killed, when God's wrath was poured out for my sin and yours, what's your reaction to that sacrifice? Thank you, God. Appreciate it, but why don't let me go on with my own life? No thanks, God. I'd rather stand in my own merit. Oh, my friends, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. He loves us. Do you know love? Have you experienced Grace that comes from placing your, your trust in him? Do you know a peace that passes understanding? Do you know a peace where Jesus would say, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. Well, this is a much better peace. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, he's made us a kingdom. Oh, a glorious rank. Our citizenship is in heaven. They were in poverty. They were in afflictions. They were outcasts. You may also be as you stand for Christ. But they, on the other hand, a kingdom and priests, royal servants who minister before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What a privileged opportunity. 
priest to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. And we say in response, so let it be. Amen. That is, we're giving ourselves over in affirmation and in heart commitment to what has been said here. This is who my God is. This is what my God has done. This is what I have in my life. Life-changing grace and peace, no matter the circumstance and no matter the setting. I encourage you now at this time to bow your head with me. I want to ask you a question. My friend, have you experienced the grace and peace that can only be found from the triune God and through his sacrificed lamb, Jesus Christ? Do you know by experience his love Have you placed your trust in Jesus Christ, his sacrifice for your sins? Have you been freed from your sin? You're still in bondage. You can simply pray, Lord Jesus, I confess my sin. I know, I know I'm a sinner, and I believe that Jesus died for me. Please save me. For those of you who have already made that decision because of God's work in your heart, are you living under his lordship today? Are you experiencing the fullness of life that only he can give? Right now, my friend, think about it. Is the priorities of your week to come, your schedule, your value system, what's important to to you, how you'll spend your money, how you'll spend your time, what you'll read, what you'll watch. Has it been aligned by the true view of God that we have here? I want to say to you again, if so, blessed are you because you've heard and you take to heart what is written. You take to heart. You internalize And now we pray together, oh Lord Jesus, help us take to heart what is written. May our life be changed for your glory. We pause for a moment as you look into our hearts. Expose what needs to be changed. Give us resolve and commitment, sensitivity to your Holy Spirit. For the glory of our worthy Savior, we pray in Jesus' name.